Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To find out how you can support this podcast directly and receive other exclusive benefits, visit patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. Here's episode six. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. I'm going in. I'm going up the stairway. Hi! Good to see you. Welcome. Good to see you. Welcome, yeah. welcome to Retrofret. Thank you. Yeah, we're still here. I'm going to record here. this whole interaction. We're just going for it. Okay. okay. I'll sign a yeah. waiver. There's a non that's Shira Goldberg on staff at Retrofret Guitars in Brooklyn in the neighborhood of Carroll Gardens, almost on the border of Red Hook. And it sounds like she's welcoming me for the first time, but we're kidding around. I've been there before, we're friends, and when I do moods and modes, there's no waiver or NDA. However, there is an element of truth because it feels like entering for the first time. This is mid-summer 2020, and things are just starting to open back up after a long period of uncertainty for several months. And I'm one of the first customers back in the store, which at this point is by appointment only. You are probably the first, one of the first people I talked to in the shutdown. That was the strangest period. Yeah, that was when it really was the streets were silent. So yeah. I thought, okay, getting an amp. How? How? How the hell is well, that going to happen? The amp. We knew you'd come back for the amp eventually. That 
Evangelist. <laughs> we weren't worried. It was more like, hey, just so you know, we're still going to be a business. You're probably wondering, what are they talking about here? Coming back for the amp? What amp? That'll be explained in great detail in the second half of this episode, or as Ira Glass might call it, Act 2 of our show. For Act 1, we're going to get to know Retrofred a little better. First, however, a few thoughts on vintage guitars and vintage culture from a personal perspective. I came of age as a guitarist in the 1980s. In the beginning of the decade, I was a young boy of 11 and had barely played guitar for a year. As the decade came to a close, so did my teens. By that time, the band I joined in high school, called Testament, I think most of you know that, was touring the world supporting groups like Anthrax and Megadeth. Now, the reason I'm sharing this extremely abbreviated version of my resume up to that point is to let you know that vintage equipment was not a part of it. We were all looking for a more modern sound. And although image was much less of a priority for our scene than certain others, I think it's safe to say that we were looking for a more modern look too. And that included our instruments. And those of us who were big fans of technical guitar playing had been impacted by Eddie Van Halen and then Randy Rhodes, both of whom played very flashy modern instruments on stage. Although interestingly, they both owned Les Pauls and some of the most iconic tone they created was done with these classic Les Pauls. Eddie Van Halen had hot-rodded his amps as well in a quest for more modern tone. And by the end of the decade, Metallica had become a major influential force. They hadn't even done the Black Album yet. Regardless, manufacturers were already rushing to fulfill the demand for a more modern amp, one that didn't require the customer to have to engage in the painstaking research of the James Hetfield, who had tried every combination of preamp, distortion pedal, and amp head or Eddie Van Halen, who was infamous for causing his 1970s Marshalls to blow up in concert and in the studio by increasing the voltage like an electrical engineering pirate. And as far as technical guitar players, you had Steve Vai, my former teacher Joe Satriani, who were playing Ibanez, George Lynch, who was playing ESP, uh, the company Jackson had gotten very well known, largely due to Randy Rhodes. All of which is to say that during this time period, vintage culture existed, but it was more a part of genres such as blues, country, and folk. It hadn't merged with hard rock or heavy metal. Now, there were a few exceptions. The guitarist Eric Johnson, who is not a hard rock or metal guitarist, but whose playing was so technical that it caught on with that crowd, especially the guitar community, he was able to do concerts with folks like Vi and Satriani. He played vintage strats. And of course, let's not forget one of the biggest exceptions of all, a scruffy little hard rock band from LA who would become one of the biggest groups in the world, Guns N' Roses. Now, Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash was less technical than the other names I just mentioned, but arguably more relatable. Um, it certainly reached listeners beyond the guitar community. And Guns N' Roses really flipped the switch in a way. Vintage culture became part of their aesthetic. The same is true of groups that were a little less hard rock, but with some of the same intensity, but more classic rock. Artists such as Lenny Kravitz and the Black Crows, to name a couple of examples. But it was largely due to the massive impact of Guns N' Roses and Slash that interest in an old Les Paul suddenly went through the roof. And I probably don't need to tell you what else went through the roof. That's right, you guessed it, the price. So how did I get into vintage gear? Well, I've told the story before, I'm not gonna go into too much detail, but just to make it short, in the 90s, 
I had a lot of catching up to do and I'd fallen hard for jazz guitar. So along with many deep dives into the work of great artists like Wes Montgomery, Grant Green, and Jim Hall, I took more of an interest in their sound and their instruments, eventually making a promise to myself that I will buy a great jazz guitar and if I don't get my playing up to a professional level in a few years, it must go back. I told this story in episode one, and that guitar is a 1976 Gibson L5. It was around this time I rediscovered the Les Paul, and I realized I'd never owned a gold top. So I took a guitar I wasn't playing much that I'd acquired in my endorsement with Ibanez. It was a Steve Vai guitar, one of these crazy instruments with a handle and a flashy color and a whammy bar. I just wasn't playing the thing, no disrespect. I traded it to a store called House of Guitars, which is still there, a terrific store in Rochester, New York. And I got a Gold Top Les Paul Historic Edition 1960 reissue. And it's probably needless to say, but I still have the guitar. It's been part of some of my most memorable recordings and performances. It was one of several guitars that served as a blueprint for my own signature guitar. And uh, I think that was a good trade. Now, I realize I've been going on for a while now, and there's so much great material to get to concerning Retrofret, but I just want to add one more thing. No sooner had I started to feel a deeper connection with instruments that had classic quality, and in some cases history, than a TV commercial came out that was an ad for Visa credit cards. And I'm not a big fan of TV commercials, but this one was pretty cool. I can't find it online. I've looked all over. So I've decided to recreate it for you right here. If you ever find yourself out by way of Nashville, be sure to visit a little guitar shop where for more than 20 years, George Groon has been maintaining, repairing, and selling America's finest guitars to the best in the business. So if you plan to take your licks on a 1937 pre-war Martin, you better bring the best you got. And bring your Visa card, because at Groon Guitars, they take six stringing seriously, and they don't take American Express. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact year of the Martin described in the ad, but I do remember it was a pre-war Martin. Oh, and I forgot a crucial part of the ad. Visa, it's everywhere you want to be. They had a whole series of these ads, different locations and different situations all over the world, unrelated except for that slogan. It's everywhere you want to be. Once you've seen the show Mad Men, it's hard to hear that without imagining a pitch meeting taking place on the top floor of a skyscraper on Madison Avenue in Manhattan, said by a character who could be portrayed by the actor John Hamm. By the way, the guitar you're hearing there, that's my Telecaster purchased from Groon Guitars in Nashville a number of years ago. Totally unplanned, a bit of a wild story and used that night at the Ryman Auditorium up the road, home of the Grand Ole Opry. That's a tale for another day. The point is that this Visa ad, which aired in the early 90s, not only helped raise the profile of Groon Guitars in Nashville, it also helped instill, or for many of us further instill, an appreciation for vintage acoustics, electrics, amplifiers, and other instruments. And as much as this ad set the tone of Groon Guitars feeling like a sort of mecca, which it certainly is, 
Retrofred is easily as much of a mecca. It's just not located in the heart of Nashville. It's kind of off the beaten track in Brooklyn. So it's time to take a trip out of Tennessee, head up north to New York, and get to know the guitar mecca known as Retrofred. I had my original shop in um, Soho on, on Mercer Street back in the late 70s. That's Steve Urich, owner and founder of Retrofret. I was doing a lot of repair work for um, a place, a guitar trader out in Red Bank, New Jersey, and relocated out there. And that was really interesting because that was my first, like, real immersion in the world of um, vintage instruments. Yeah. I mean, it was just like a giant supermarket full of 59 bursts. Yeah, and I don't mean reissues, you know. Yeah. It's like everything there was. So I got to learn a lot. But, you know, ultimately, I just wanted to keep doing repairs on my own. So I moved back to New York, and we moved uh, into the building here. I'm just going to point out that when he says here, he's not talking about the store's current location. We're actually in his car, and we're driving past the store's longtime original location. 1981. Oh, that long? Yeah, that long? so, yeah, so wow. moved in here in the early 80s on oh. Butler. Okay, a few things. Why are we in the car together? Steve has generously offered to give me a ride. We are wearing masks and the windows are open, so don't worry. I live fairly close to the store. It's about a 20-minute walk, but too far to walk with a large amplifier. So along the way, we decide to drive by the store's previous location until just a couple years ago. It's only a few blocks out of the way from my place and about a mile and a half away from the store's current location. Uh, and how many locations total? This is the second one? Well, we were on, on Butler Street uh, since the mid-'80s oh. up until two years ago. Wow. This okay. September will be two years at the new place on uh, on Luker Street. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize it was that long. So the long-time location of Retrofret, which I had no idea had been there since the 80s, is in an area where there's nothing else around. It's not like, oh, there's a convenience store here, a restaurant here, and a guitar shop. No, nothing. It was total industrial desolation. It still is. Now, I often hear tales about my own neighborhood and how dangerous it used to be. By the time I got here in the mid-O's, it was said to be a neighborhood that's quote-unquote turning around. Now we have our own Whole Foods and Starbucks. Enough said. Yet I think it's safe to say that even those of us who recognize the negative sociological implications of gentrification, especially those concerning corporate megachains, all agree. This was not a place you wanted to be. You could ask my friend Vernon Reed of Living Color. Back in the early 80s, he once ventured out this way to purchase a piece of used music equipment. He ended up caught up in a police raid with guns drawn. He was nearly the victim of a police chokehold. My other friend, Michael Manring, genius of the fretless bass, probably the most mild-mannered musician I've ever met. He used to live here in Park Slope in the 1980s. He was mugged several times. So whatever words one might use to describe Park Slope in the 80s, sketchy, a tough neighborhood. Burham Hill, about a half mile to the north and where the original retrofret was located on Butler Street, was just as bad, maybe worse. Yet there, hidden in the middle of this bleak urban block far off the beaten track, a setting highly familiar to fans of gritty gangster films, such as those by Martin Scorsese. The type of place certain shady characters might seek out to do their dirty deeds indiscreet. Like a secret hidden treasure trove buried within a tomb in Raiders of the Lost Ark, to use a very different film reference. 
Gold Top Les Pauls from the 50s, 59 Sunburst Les Pauls, pre-CBS Stratocasters, Martins, Flat Tops, Arch Tops from the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, instruments from before then. Now, mind you, you couldn't just walk into this place. It was like a fortress. They had to buzz you in. You had to walk up a set of stairs. They had to buzz you into another door. You would walk across a courtyard. There were additional doors and stairs. I'm so glad I got to at least visit the old place. Yeah, it was quite the the, the maze getting into the shop in the back. And I know. love it. Yeah, that was part of the fun. Right? You yeah, go yeah, up, yeah, yeah. Ring a bell, go up a staircase, right. ring another bell, go, go, go out down on the hall. Route, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. There was something so secret society-like right. about it. Did you ever go through the downstairs of the old shop? I never did. No. You know, it was a pipe organ shop. My my business partner worked on p- church pipe organs, so oh, okay. he needed a lot of a lot of headroom. Wow! Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So Retrofred's current location is an area that feels much more like a residential neighborhood than an urban underworld. It's also less isolated. It's a pretty short walk to streets where you might find a cafe or a record store. There's even another guitar store nearby, although it's more of a Brooklyn hipster type place. Visiting the new retrofret feels less like attending a secret society meeting and more like visiting somebody in their Brooklyn apartment. There is no display window, as is typical with other music stores, and the sign is rather discreet. You do need to be buzzed in. However, there are only two doors this time and just one small set of stairs. Although the interior is quite a bit smaller than that of the original location, it doesn't feel that small. It has a brightness that the old place didn't have, which is helped by large windows, freshly painted walls, and well-maintained hardwood floors. It's also quite stunning how many incredible instruments they managed to fit in there without it feeling crowded. Yeah, you know what's funny? I never, every time I'm here, I never really look around. You have the entire place to yourself. This is amazing, yeah. You may play. Wow. Yeah, how can I not? Wow, it's old, old gypsy uh, guitar. Yeah, those are cool. Do you play one? I have one. Oh. I have a, a newer one. I got um, your parents. We're back in the store with Shira. I'm recording this on my iPhone on an app and a very good microphone. The problem is uh, the microphone has a cover, so it's shaped like a little ball. And since it's in my pocket, and I'm distracted by all these wonderful instruments. I'm forgetting that the foam cover for the microphone is rubbing up against me as I bend down to pick up the guitars. The first batch of guitars are on stands on the floor. Now, I was explaining to her that I really haven't had time to walk around and play the instruments, which is so ironic. But uh, the last time I was there, I was in a big hurry. I was actually leaving for tour the next day. So the timing is amazing. And I just had enough time to try out this amp. And the one other time I was in there recently was for an informal concert by a fellow customer named Bill Frizzell. (laughs) Yes, that Bill Frizzell. And this is one of the cool things Retrofret does sometimes. They'll send out a newsletter to their emailing list letting folks know about this or another closed event. But it is open for the first X number of people to respond. And it's a small number. I forget what it is, but we were a classroom-sized group hanging out on a Sunday afternoon listening to Bill Frizzell playing by himself on guitars straight off the rack at Retrofet. Pretty cool. And even today, when there's more time than usual, hardly anybody else in the store, and I'm just waiting on my item to be retrieved and processed in the back, there's still not enough time to properly play as many instruments as I would like. 
Visitors to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York have said that it would really take a week to properly absorb everything in the museum. And although the size of the Met covers several city blocks, I would say the same is true for Retrofat. Regardless, despite there never being enough time to explore the whole store, I do get to try out some very fine instruments. Now that first batch of guitars I mentioned that's on stands on the floor, these are all gypsy jazz or manouche guitars, as they're called. And I was explaining to Shira that I have a more recent one built by a luthier in Paris, but I've never played ones this old. So here I am playing around with one that she's recommended, and she's been called off. Business is starting to pick up, as you'll hear. Shipments are arriving, other things are going on. So this is just me, and I'm speaking into the recorder. Now this is a um, Busada Grand Model uh, from the 1930s. Costs eleven thousand five hundred dollars. That's a beauty. say this thing just feels old. Okay. I mean that in the best possible way. Pardon all the distractions. These distractions are actually a really good thing at this point. That means things are starting up again. Everybody's been locked in their homes to the point where it doesn't really feel like home. And uh, returning to normal and doing normal activities such as going to work or being in a guitar shop, that feels like home. Home at last. Now let's check out another guitar I tried out. The amazing thing about this one is its size. It's not much bigger than a ukulele or a baby Taylor guitar. It's a parlor guitar made by Gibson, yet the sound is huge, so much that it makes me play Led Zeppelin. The song 10 Years Gone comes to mind. Uh, it's a Gibson HGOO 1936. <laughs> Hopefully, even in this most basic recording, you can hear that these are not your run-of-the-mill average acoustic guitars. It would be even clearer if you could hear them in a professional setting, recorded with high-quality microphones and maybe processed with a little bit of reverb and equalization. But there's nothing here. They're just straight into the recorder. The magic is all there. So let's go back to that first row of gypsy jazz guitars. 30s. 
I didn't even know they had these. Well, I guess so, yeah, Django was in the 40s. Yeah. Like, it's hard, like, there's so many different variations in Europe. Mm -hmm. It's hard in Europe that's a difference, a, a, not a different story, it's part of the same larger story. But the guitar in Europe is the diversity of that type of instrument, you know, mm -hmm. going from, well, you know, the, you know the history of the guitar? Well, it came from Italy, originally. Well, the not exactly. It actually came, all right, now I'm going to go there. I'm going to go. I'm, I'm just going to pause right here. Uh, Shira is very shortly going to lay down some serious information. This takes place as I'm trying out the guitars and the item that I've come for is being processed and prepared in another part of the store in order for me to take it home at last. Uh, but first, let's do our midway break. Shira's guitar history is a significant segment, and it's awesome, so I don't want to have to interrupt it. And uh, we'll also get to the story of the item that I'm picking up, which I have alluded to, which connects directly to the title of this episode. So we're going to keep this break fairly short because there's a lot of content to get to. But a quick welcome to episode six. Six! A half a dozen. I guess we're a real podcast now. I appreciate all the feedback, the sharing, the subscribing, the reviews. The audience seems to be growing, and there seems to be an appreciation for the different types of episodes, whether it's the jam episodes or the story episodes like this. This one was planned for a long time. Every time I would go to the original Retrofrat, I would think, this would be such a fun thing to capture. So it's great to finally have moods and modes up and running, to be able to document this experience, and to be able to share it with all of you. One episode I'm getting a lot of feedback about, it's actually a two-part episode, is the uh, Peter Green episode and that wasn't planned he had just passed away and inspired the uh, deep dive into the life and music of peter green by the way uh, one of the guests on that episode dave rubin author educator with numerous books for hal leonard music company would like me to let you know that uh, he and i are collaborating on a book i wasn't sure it was okay to announce that but he said yes announce it <laughs> plug it so there will be an Alex Skolnick book for Hal Leonard, more focused on the jazz rock instrumental side of things, with the assistance of Dave Rubin, and you'll be hearing more about this as it gets closer. So I think that's it for housekeeping. Thank you again for listening and reviewing, and thank you Patreon subscribers. There have been a bunch of new ones with each episode. And any hesitancy I had about doing a podcast is gone. I did see that there are new podcasts this week by Michael Cohen, and Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> so it has gotten to that point. Disgraced attorney? Disbarred? Prison? Start a podcast. Anyway, you guys make me proud to be a podcaster, so thanks again. And now let's return to Retrofret. To work at Retrofret, you need to know an incredible amount about the guitar, and not just the guitar itself, but its precursors, as well as the many variations of guitars. There are so many different types of guitars. Steel string or dreadnought guitars, classical nylon string guitars, flamenco nylon string guitars, minouche or gypsy jazz guitars, hollow body guitars, semi-hollow body guitars, arch top guitars, harp guitars, Hawaiian guitars, parlor guitars, lap steel guitars, pedal steel guitars, baritone guitars, resonator guitars, bass guitars, and I haven't even mentioned the basic solid body electric guitar.
And of course, within those types of guitars, there are the brands. Some are household names that are giant corporations. Others are very small boutique brands. And of course, there's further variations and offshoots within those brands. And out of every type of guitar I just mentioned, I cannot think of one that I did not see at Retrofret. There were probably more. There were also the other instruments, the ukuleles and mandolins, even banjos, which is kind of miraculous because Retrofret is not located in the biggest space. In other words, they could never get away with doing one of these silly ads where the store brags about the size of its inventory. You know, kind of like the type you used to hear from major music chains advertising on FM rock radio. <laughs> Can you imagine? Musicians, we've got early 20th century guitars, ukuleles, and banjos. Retrofret, the largest selection of vintage instruments in the New York tri-state area. I have a saying which I, applies to instruments in general, which is you can't grow the same tree twice. You just oh, that's can't. Yes. Right? That's a really good point. Like, even in the same year, you will have guitars that are supposed to be the same, but they uh -huh. are not the same. Mm. And why is that? Because yeah. you're working with a natural material. Whenever you're working with a material, every single piece of wood is going to be different from every other piece of wood. It's going to have different grain, it's going to have different knots, it'll have different weaknesses. It maybe it rained more one year, maybe it rained less, maybe it was hot, maybe it was a terrible winter. Like all these things affect the wood. And um, you have to put a different piece of water every time. So, uh, that being said, the wood. So, the wood comes up into Spain. Very popular in France. And um, comes the wood, which is le wood. Le wood. Oh, that's so interesting. Yes. Woods spread through Europe. They were quite the fat, you see. Mm -hmm. You know, paintings of people playing the lute. Yep. And um, they made it into various countries and got turned into different instruments in different ways. Mm -hmm. So, and here's a really good example, actually. Okay. I'll show you something that ties it all together. Going over to the mandolin rack. Right. So in Never Italy, the lute becomes smaller. Mm -hmm multi-course strings, uh -huh. eight strings here. They, a lot of them had that bowl back, which is what you think of when you look at the lute. I mean, when you look at the lute, it has that bowl down yes. back. And that's, there's still bowl back mandolins that you find that are very similar. They look very similar to, they look like little tiny lutes. They're hard to play. Yes, they are. <laughs> that's why we don't have any. Yeah. Um, that tradition did not yeah, carry keep over. up yeah. with modern building practice, mm -hmm. but anyhow, um, and then, you know, Gibson came along and the archtop mandolin and... So just to make sure you're with us so far, it really started in the Middle East with the instrument called the oud, which is still played today. The oud found its way to Spain and France. In France, it was called le oud, and a variation of it became the lute. And I probably don't need to explain that this was much earlier and totally unrelated to a song by rapper Biggie Smalls. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. 
Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. The lute finds its way to Italy, where it morphs into yet another variation called the mandolin. This is the version of the mandolin that's round, as you've seen in Renaissance paintings, and they're still played sometimes. I actually own one one time, and they're really hard to play. Well, uh, at the time the mandolin found its way to America, Gibson, when it was just starting out, pre-guitar Gibson, figured out that if you flatten the mandolin, it's much easier to play. And that becomes the American mandolin. The establishing thing that Gibson did, Orville Gibson did, the actual guy, was that he innovated the archtop mandolin. Oh, okay. um, Which is a better, it's a better instrument in a lot of ways than the bullback mandolin, sound-wise. Practically. Practically, just in a lot of different ways. A tragic story, his business got bought out after he kind of had a reputation for building these mandolins that people were really into, and he was pretty much cut up. He like really disagreed with the uh, changes that the business made to the mandolin. Well, this happens often, right? This is uh, often. Yeah, this is a story all the time. Died penniless in a mental institution. Orville Gibson. Okay. What? I know. Oh, the music industry has always been brutal. Did you hear what she just said? The music industry has always been brutal. Isn't that the understatement? It brings to mind the quote attributed to Hunter S. Thompson. Quote, The music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. Unquote. Now, there is some mythology around this quote. It was embellished, taken from an interview he'd given where he was speaking about the Hollywood television industry, which certainly shares some similar attributes, especially when it came to the theft of creative ideas and the taking advantage of folks whose artistic visions outweighed their discernment of exploitative business practices. And I never imagined Orville Gibson would be one of these people. I mean, after all, his name is on so many of our guitars. I figured he must have been the powerful businessman. Maybe behind the scenes there was some creative builder the equivalent of Rosalind Franklin, who was never properly credited with her data, which helped discover DNA when Watson and Crick got all the credit. Who knew Mr. Gibson really did deserve the credit, but whoever he went into business with ended up forcing him out, keeping his name. This has happened so many times with guitar companies. Leo Fender, the man no less than invents the solid body guitar in the early part of the 20th century, yet is eventually forced to give up all controlling interests in the company that's named after him due to a hostile takeover. And it's amazing how often this has happened, not just with the companies that created the great vintage instruments, but the more modern ones as well. Grover Jackson got kicked out of Jackson. Wayne Charvel got kicked out of Charvel. Dean Zielinski got kicked out of Dean. What is it with this industry? I can only guess that some of these business people when they were growing up focused on words like profit and capitalism. Well, there's a word they missed, ethics. So folks, I'm going to do a slight course correction here, or rather an adjustment, because there is so much material, and we're already at over a half hour. 
So Shira's already given us a very good condensed version of the guitar's origins in Europe. But its history in North America is incredible. And I want to give that the time it deserves. There are also portions of that segment in which another customer is in the next room, and he's one of these guys that talks as if he's wearing headphones and thinks he needs to speak up for everybody else to hear him. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. You know. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to have her re-record some of those portions. I am due to return to Retrofret um, November 1st because I'm doing a video series there called Tone Sweet Tone. This is a big honor. I'm a fan of the folks they've had do this so far. And uh, we'll get a really good recording of me playing some of these great instruments. So it'll only make sense to turn that into an episode. So I think what we'll do is we'll continue with Shira's guitar history on that episode, it won't be back-to-back, obviously. This is uh, in the beginning of November, so that will be in an upcoming episode called Return to Retrofret. Okay, so I still need to tell the story of this amp, but before I do, there is one more segment that directly connects with the previous one. We were just talking about well-known guitar builders who would eventually be forced out from their own companies by unscrupulous investors and business people, the very same folks they'd gone into business with before becoming mega brands. Well, there were exceptions. The rare craftsmen who turned down huge offers and chose to remain a lone builder with an occasional apprentice. Well, there just happened to be a guitar in the shop that day, made by the very hands of just such a person. This guitar was built back in the Eisenhower administration. He would never release a guitar before it was ready, and thus there aren't that many. These aren't that easy to come across. It almost feels sacrilegious to begin with a lick that involves right hand slapping tap technique. However, this lick from a tune of mine called Unbound is a great way to test a guitar's responsiveness, and this one has it in droves. Now, there's a tradition going back decades of referring to a guitar with the gender-specific pronoun of she, much like you would a boat. Now, for some reason, I never thought of my own guitars as being female or male or any gender. And in all honesty, referring to a guitar as she in this day and age feels a little bit out of step with modern social etiquette. Therefore, I shall be referring to these instruments with the gender-neutral pronoun of it. I hope nobody takes offense. All kidding aside and all sensitivities aside, please allow me the following comment. The guitar I'm playing right here reminds me of Marilyn Monroe beautiful, blonde, and most of all, classy. Built during the same time period that Marilyn became an icon, the mid-1950s. Just looking at this guitar gives you the feeling of seeing the Manhattan skyline all lit up on a clear night, or taking a sip of a martini shaken with olives or a twist. In fact, the instrument is such an embodiment of elegance, easily at home at a black tie event attended by the creme de la creme of uptown high society, that it's easy to forget that it was handcrafted in a humble workshop in Little Italy by a man dripping with sweat on a floor covered with sawdust, a son of Italian immigrants, John D'Angelico, widely considered to be the all-time master builder of archtop guitars. Incidentally, the name of this top-shelf six-string is the New Yorker by D'Angelico. 
this one will set you back $40,000. That's actually a pretty good deal. I've seen them listed for more. And this one is no longer on the website. Somebody bought it. It can be so interesting to compare guitar prices. Everything is relative. A few episodes ago, we did a segment on a guitar that, while I'm not sure the exact price, I know it cost more than 10 times as much as this one. Originally, it was listed for more than 20 times as much. Of course, I'm talking about Greeny, which is Peter Green's 59 Les Paul. And there are other 59 Les Pauls that fetch that amount of money. At the same time, in our previous episode, we talked about a guitar that costs a lot less. Nierfelder's Made in Mexico Stratocaster, which at the time of purchase probably cost roughly one one-hundredth of this original D'Angelico. Yet he gets everything he needs out of that guitar. Most of my guitars cost about a tenth as much as the D'Angelico. There may be one or two that could fetch a low five-digit figure. And even if I was in the tax bracket where I could just drop $40,000 on an instrument, I'd be very selective about it. But this guitar, and I would imagine any guitar, hand-built by John D'Angelico himself, is worth it. And now, as promised, the inspiration for the title of this episode. Let me explain. Let's take a brief trip together, you and me. Back to another era. It was a time when the word face mask implied something you might wear in the winter. When it was cold outside. Perhaps you were going skiing. Or maybe you wanted to rob a bank. The word testing was something done by school children and college students for educational evaluation. It was also a word said into a microphone to dial in the sound. Something like this. Testing. Testing. One, two. Corona brought to mind cheap beer, or perhaps the sun, or a neighborhood in Queens, and for others, a small town in Southern California. (sighs) Such an innocent time. January 2020. So back in January, I received an email from one of the other folks at RetroFret. Now, the email said something to the effect of, hey, last time you were in the store, you'd mentioned that you were searching for this certain type of Fender amp. We just got something in that we think you may be interested in, and it may fit that description. What do you think? Now, this email had come in a very surprisingly short amount of time from when I'd last been in the store. I couldn't have been more than a couple weeks because it was that very same month that I'd played the Baked Potato in Studio City. Now, the Baked Potato is known as the main electric jazz rock club of uh, the L.A. area. And it's been around since the 70s. It feels like you're still in the 70s. It's a total time warp. And they have different types of music. They have blues, they have Latin, they have straight-ahead jazz. They're best known, however, and most identified with of electric jazz or jazz rock or fusion. Guitarists who have played there, such as Scott Henderson, Michael Landau, Steve Lukather of Toto, those seem to be the ones most identified with the venue. Now, I often heard about the baked potato and used to dream about playing there during the years that I was still developing my instrumental side. So in the last few years, it's been a, a real pleasure to play there. I've played there with my trio, most recently in 2018 for our album release show. 
And uh, we seem to have a tradition with uh, my friend Stu Ham. Uh, we play there before every NAM show, and we always have guests. We've done this for the last few years, and it's a lot of fun. And it's always a big bass hang with Stu. You know, we've had uh, Rhonda Smith, uh, Chuck Rainey, who played with Steely Dan, uh, Divinity, who's played with Beyonce, but she's also a great rapper, bass player on her own. She sat in with us. So the bass community turns out when we play with Stu. And of course, there's a lot of guitar players, other musicians, friends I haven't seen in years. Everybody's in town because it's right before the NAMM show. It's the Tuesday before the NAMM show. So the reason I'm telling you the story is that the house amplifier at the Baked Potato is very special. Now, it's owned by the chef. He's an older gentleman who's had it since the 60s. He's actually a blues harmonica player that doesn't use it much, but he, he brought that amp with him when he got the job making the potatoes. It is called the Baked Potato for a reason. They have all types of potatoes, and they are delicious. <laughs> so I love to use this amp. And every time I tell myself, I should get an amp like this. I should track one down. So this last time, I finally remembered to take a picture of it. And I took a photo of it. And when I was in retrofret a short time later, back on the East Coast, I showed it to them. And they let me know that, yeah, sometimes they get amps like that. Uh, they'll let me know if anything comes through. And sure enough, it was such a short time later that I get this email. Now, in the email, they were kind enough to let me know that they were preparing their newsletter to go out. The newsletter announces all the recent acquisitions and sale items, and the AMP had its own page. The link was going to be included in the newsletter, and it had been photographed and fully described on the page. However, the general public was not aware of it because, again, the newsletter had not gone out yet. I'm convinced that had that newsletter gone out, somebody would have snatched this amp really fast. Here's why. Allow me to read from the description. Fender Super Amp, 1960. Previously owned by Steely Dan's Walter Becker. I don't know where to begin. I imagine most are probably aware that Walter Becker co-founded Steely Dan with Donald Fagan, and he was a multi-instrumentalist, producer, incredibly talented. He played guitar and bass, but the one time I saw Steely Dan, he was playing a lot of guitar, and I thought he stole the show, even though they had another great guitarist, John Harrington. Walter Becker's playing was just phenomenal, blew me away. And uh, Steely Dan is an institution, very unique too, loved by members of the jazz community as well as listeners to classic rock radio. And when you live in New York and you're fully committed to music and musicianship, they take on even more meaning. You appreciate them even more. You rub elbows at certain points with musicians who have worked with them. And you start to understand the references. Oh, there's New York references all over the music. All of which is to say, this is very intriguing. Long story short, I called the shop. This was the morning. I wanted to find out what time they were opening. Headed straight over. And as soon as I plugged into the amp, I didn't have to make any adjustments. I heard all the responsiveness and dynamics that I would liked so much about the house amp at the Baked Potato. 
and this amp has Walter Becker's cigarette burns and studio markings, and Steely Dan riffs sound really good. So it was under a minute before I told him, take this off the market right now. So that's the studio markings. That's, that's amazing. Markings. He had all this stuff stored in SIR, oh. and they were all up on racks. So that's how they could figure out, you know. Right. If he goes, I want the 210 Super. That's Peter Komen, another longtime RetroFret staff member. I did not know that Walter Becker was a regular customer in the store. Oh, he had this for a long time. Yeah, I didn't know him except as a customer, but he was very friendly. I used to just like we're hanging out now. I used to hang out with him for hours because he would just play stuff endlessly and tell stories and, you know, do that kind of rap on tour thing. But they had six or seven rooms in SIR full of kids. SIR, for those who don't know, stands for Studio Instrument Rental. There's one in most major markets in the U.S. that includes rehearsal studios, sound stages, equipment, PA rentals, and storage units, which include those used by the likes of Steely Dan. And he was bringing and he had a full recording and that's where he did all his demos, because he kept oh, demoing. Okay. His wife apparently didn't like him making noise in her apartment. Right. So he so would just go to SIR. He would go to SIR, apparently days at a time. Wow. So all his gear... And his, um, you ever run across a guy named Night Bob? I know who he is. So, Night Bob was his handler, essentially. Yeah. So, if he was working, Night Bob would be sitting there. And would be like, hey, Night Bob, give me, give me that 210 soup, you know, whatever he wanted. Right. Night Bob would Night Bob's okay. the gear expert. And, he, yeah, and he would go out and he would unlock the room and he'd, he'd pull whatever Aunt Walter right. thought that he wanted that day. I have heard of this Night Bob person, kind of a legend in the music industry. Much time spent with Aerosmith, as well as Steely Dan and others. And the 210 Super he's referring to is the amp that I've just made the final payment on and I'm about to bring home, home at last. To, to record. So there's no way of knowing what it was used on. But, who, but he had it. He had it for probably and for he, quite a while. And he used it. No, if you ever run across Night it's Bob, amazing. you can say, hey, Night Bob, I would Walter's own 210 Super. You know if he used it on anything? And Night Bob... I don't know. He might have used it on this. You know, who knows? Yeah, he's a character, I've yeah, heard. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's an absolute character. I, I need to meet him at some point. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's well worth it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's a lot That's of another staff member of Retrofret. He's passing by. I don't know him as well, so I don't want to say the wrong name. It's worth it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a lot of fun. I've heard. You can sit with a camera and record a living history of New York rock and roll. Just from him talking. Uh, I have to. <laughs> well, well, he was here with Bill Kirchin, and then they never met one another before. And then they started talking about their mutual experience with uh, the Stooges in 19. when their Stooges were still in high school. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> they, they both knew the, the, the group at that point. And, and, you know, it's like, so I was there kind of like, you know, like, where's my phone? I got to record. <laughs> you know? yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, there's, there's movies that you made. Some of these guys who spent their whole life doing this. Yeah. And I've, I've known enough of them that I know some of the stories. Uh, you know, I wasn't there. I was, you know, I was 10 years old. But the students grabbed their record deal with Electra. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I
And they were, both guys were named Bob. They both worked like a 12 hour shift. So it was day Bob and night Bob. Perfectionism rubbed Perfectionism off. Rub, well, they both, I think they, you know, they probably bonded on that. I actually think, you know, my, I'm, like I say, I'm not a jazz or a fusion guy. My, the Steely Nesta I like is the first, really the first record. Yeah, first it's a very rock and roll. We'll do it, it again. Really, it's a really good rock band. Yeah. And, and intelligent. And, and uh, Walter was a bass player. 
at yep. that point. And I always think of him as a bass player. In fact, I, I specifically tried to buy as many of his basses as we could. We did buy a good chunk of them. Oh, and I just enjoy, I'm a bass player myself, yeah. but I just enjoy kind of hanging out with him and playing them. I kept one for myself. Wow. Oh, good to you. A weird, rare Burns one that didn't go wow. for very much money, but I collect Burns stuff, so how perfect is that? So I, I have one of all. Nice. <laughs> just that I can't. I, well, I, I saw them live once, and uh, he played guitar. I, yeah, I thought yeah. he stole the show. Well, he he told me. He's such a great guitar player. Yeah, I, so I, just, I, I yeah. always think of him as a guitar. Player. I always liked his his bass playing a lot. So it's just it's interesting. It's not complex, but it's always you know as you might beautifully like integrate it. It's sort of the core of the thing. Um, but he told me he he used to play bass and he played guitar. When they do demos, he you know. Basically, he did all the Freddit stuff out. But see, so we started making records. One day, we hired Chuck Rainey. Now, remember, I mentioned Chuck Rainey earlier. He had attended the gig at the Baked Potato. I had played with Stu Ham, which had that amp, which indirectly led to this amp. And he came in. Oh, Chuck Rainey's a friend of my friend. And I listened to the playback and went, why do I play bass? There's no reason for me. We can hire a man who does this. That really There's does no that. reason yeah. to play the bass. So he said, I stopped. Because I still, you know, he would still play it. All the demos would still play right. the bass. But it was for their records. Yeah, once, yeah. He, he was, once I heard what a bass player of that caliber could do, I was like, no reason for me to play bass. No. And I started to concentrate on playing guitar. Yeah, more if you have Chuck, and, his, and he's such yeah, yeah. a guitar player. But his yeah. touch was just excellent. He just had this, yeah. this, this touch. And he would, you know, he'd sit for hours just playing stuff. No, I don't always let the clips run for so long, but that was incredible. I have to thank Peter for that amazing story and insight. Now, it goes without saying that the day we lost Walter Becker in 2017 was one of monumental sadness for the world of music and all who knew him. However, I've been hearing from multiple sources that Walter had a wicked sense of humor, and he would probably prefer we focus on that, especially as we close out this episode. So let me, can I tell you a Walter Becker story? Yes, please. It involves me, my wife, and my wife's old dog. That's Steve, who we met earlier, owner and founder of Retrofret, as we're in his car to take my amp home and passing by the old location of Retrofret. Okay. So Walter... You know, it started coming around to the shop here on Butler Street, and uh-huh. you know his hip was still giving him a lot of trouble. You know, getting up the stairs. What but, time period was this? Uh, this has to be, I don't know. I'm going to say seven, eight years ago, okay. maybe. My wife was accustomed to coming to the shop, and we had that walkway across the roof, so she let Ross off the leash all the time. So, you know, open the door, and Ross comes running in and sticks his snout right in Walter's. Crotch, oh no! Right, <laughs> and I'm like, Ross, get down! And she's trying to grab the dog, and Walter just smiles and goes, hmm, "Feels like the '70s again." Ah, uh, that was the best <laughs> line ever. Great line, and a good line to go out on. However, there's just one more thing before I leave you. Remember this. You ever run across a guy named Night Bob? Night I know who he is. So, so I, I need to meet him at some point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's well know. worth it. It's, yeah. 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 He's a lot of fun. Hey, Alex, how are you? Hey, Bob. Hey, let me ask you this. Did you ever do an Ibanez thing in the early 90s? I did, Which yes. Like all, I, I mixed that show. Oh, is that right? <laughs> oh, what yeah, a small I, world. I went there. Yeah, I told Chris about that. I go, he goes, well, you know, my friend. Bob. I go, yeah, I know who he is.
And on that note, let's wrap this up. I want to thank my friends at Retrofret who made this possible. Steve, Shira, Peter, and all the rest. And their website's retrofret.com. Posthumous thank you to the great Walter Becker. And I can't believe we got in a cameo from the mysterious Night Bob. <laughs> thank you, Bob. That was a quick getting to know you phone call. But there are plans for a Moods and Modes Night Bob episode. And for that, I need to thank my good friend Chris Kelly, artist rep for numerous companies who made the connection. And thank you all for listening and subscribing and supporting. Moods and Modes is produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Opening theme by yours truly. Closing theme by yours truly. With Nathan Peck playing bass and Matt Zabrowski playing drums. Anywhere else you notice live bass and live drums, it'll be those guys. The solo piano you heard was yours truly. I would normally not hire myself as a keyboardist, but I was having a good moment and happened to press record. Oh, and of course, Home at Last is by Steely Dan. Gimme the Loot is by the Notorious B.I.G. And we are remembering the Notorious R.B.G., Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has gone home at last. This episode is dedicated to her and the Notorious Walter B., the great Walter Becker. And as always, you can support the podcast directly by going to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. And that's it for episode six. We'll see you in ETA two weeks for episode seven. Until then, stay safe, stay tuned, and thanks again for listening. I came of age as a guitarist in the 1980s. I had just started playing at the beginning of the decade. Fuck. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, this is Henry K host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music, because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.